This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is G-Money. G-Money is an influential builder, collector, and investor in the NFT community. He shot to fame with a tweet thread explaining why he bought a CryptoPunk for 140 ETH in January 2021, and has since transitioned from full-time equities trader to a builder with the Admit One community and 9DCC, his crypto-native luxury clothing brand. To show just how far he has come in the space, Adidas teamed up with G-Money to bring their brand into Web3. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. G-Money, thank you for joining us. I'm excited to have you on the show finally. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to finally be on. So I thought an interesting place to start would be where I first saw your Twitter avatar, the famous crypto punk ape, was when you wrote this, what's now, I think, a monumental historical thread back in January 2021. I think maybe set the stage for people who haven't read it, the few people that haven't, and kind of explain like, what were you thinking when you wrote it? What were you trying to share? Like, what led up to that point in time for you? It was really interesting because up until that point in time, when I wrote that thread, I was in NFTs for three months. I had been in crypto since 2017. In Q1 of 2018, I sold whatever I had that was liquid. And I was like, this tech is amazing. It's going to change the way the world works but it's still too early. So I sold what I had in Q1 of 2018. I came back into crypto in 2020 after COVID when basically the Fed said that they were buying every asset class out there. And I go into DeFi and I start yield farming and like relearning the ropes of like, holy shit, we built the tech way faster than I thought it would happen. And I remember I got rugged on sushi, which I guess apparently was Sam rugging me again. <laughs> and I was doing all that stuff, right? And just learning with like small amounts of capital. And then I found NFTs towards the end of DeFi summer. So in like late August, early September, they started making sense to me right away because I was playing Fortnite starting at the beginning of quarantine. And I specifically remember I was talking to one of my best friends. We were playing together and he's like, dude, we're wasting our time. Like, I can't believe we're playing video games. We should be being productive and this and that. I'm like, yeah, whatever, man. Life is short. Just enjoy it. And that really was me playing Fortnite is the reason why I understood digital assets and identity in an online format as quickly as I did, because I was playing with these 12-year-old kids and they were spending tons of money on skins. I come from the world of if I'm going to spend money on something, like it should be easier to win. And that's generally like traditional mobile gaming or whatever have you, right? Like I've spent hundreds of dollars on Candy Crush. And so I realized that there was going to be the massive super cycle that that kid is 12 years old today, 10 years from now, he'll be 22, and he's be totally okay owning a purely digital asset. So when I find NFTs, 
I'm like, oh, this is your skin on Twitter. This is going to be super valuable. So I start going down the rabbit hole. I start buying a bunch of NFT projects. I said to myself, okay, I'm going to allocate $100,000 to the space. I'm going to do, I think I said like $5,000 per project and just kind of do portfolio theory of like one or two of these are going to hit. Most of them go to zero and hopefully I do well. I was buying stuff and I originally was like CryptoPunks. I think the floor of CryptoPunks was like a thousand or 1500 bucks at that point. I was like, oh man, this is way too high. Like I'm going to find the next CryptoPunks. And I was going through things and going through projects. But I, I had also realized that there are a lot of really smart people in crypto, like way, way smarter than myself, but they didn't understand digital identity and let's say status and displays of status in a digital realm. And I was able to begin to articulate my thoughts to the point where I remember this was the night of the open editions on Nifty Gateway. I was out to dinner with like seven or eight people in the crypto space. I brought my laptop and it was in my car. And I was like, guys, I have to go in like five minutes before because I am I was like, literally, I'm like, I'm be minting this thing from my laptop because I want to buy these things. And I had convinced them that, and they were up until that point, they all thought NFTs were stupid. And in 20 minutes, I had convinced them that maybe NFTs were not the dumbest thing in the world and that maybe it wasn't for them, but they could understand why I would find value in it or somebody would find value in it. And pretty much everybody at that dinner table ended up minting at least one people every day. So they all did really well off that. But I realized around that time that it's like, okay, I have these really good thoughts and I can explain it and conceptualize it and explain it in a way that people would start to understand it. The problem was if I'm going to walk around and convince people one dinner party at a time, I'm going to be here for the next 100 million years before I even come close to red pilling everyone. So I was like, all right, well, let me take social media and kind of create this online identity, right? G Money, which was a nickname I always had growing up and just say, all right, I see the world slightly differently than most. And maybe somebody's interested in what I have to say, and maybe I help them understand it. And that really was the genesis of that thread. Whereas I finally, I bought my CryptoPunk ape, which like I said, I originally wanted to spend $100,000 in the entire NFT space. That NFT alone was 150000 So it was just like, here's my thesis. I'm laying it out on the line. It just so happened that I think right after I wrote that, I think Bitcoin pulled back from 30000 to like 20000 And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Talk about signs at the top. It's like spending money on an overpriced JPEG. That was one of the things that obviously the trader in me, I immediately was like, oh my God, was this a mistake? But I did have the conviction that if Ethereum was going to go higher, then assets priced in Ethereum, ways to kind of showcase that wealth would also go higher the same way that luxury cars, watches, cigars, wine, real estate, all those things go up when the stock market goes high. So for me, it was like, if I get a derivative on a derivative, the convexity of that trade would be incredible. When you did it, I think it was the highest sale at the time. So it wasn't like you made a small bet and kind of were quiet. You made a huge bet and kind of set a market price. I got to think back to your trading days. It's not something you were used to doing or that wasn't your style of risk management or position sizing. What was it about digital identity, the way you did it? Because obviously it's brilliant now that we look back at in hindsight of what it did and everything that you've become since that point. Why do it in such an open and public way? I will say it's definitely not the kind of trading that I did because I was a much shorter term trader. But 
the risk reward was too good. And so even though I over allocated to the NFT sector in general, as I looked at it from a risk reward perspective, it was, I thought, literally the best risk adjusted trade you can make on planet Earth at that time. And I'm like, well, the most I can lose is 100%. And if I did lose 100%, I allocated my life would be fine. I'd be pissed off. I lost the money, but whatever. But if I was right, I would make multiples, you know, hundreds, if not thousand X's on that money. So if you told me that and I had more than like a three to 4% chance of being right, I'd take that bet every single time, right? And that's the trader in me. And so the reason why I was loud about it as well was because I noticed that nobody was also thinking about it. And so I was like, all right, if I can build a brand around my thought process of how I see the world and how maybe it's a little slightly different than most, then maybe there's also value to that as well. It was like a two-pronged thing. And initially, I'll be honest, when I first got into NFTs, it was a trade. It wasn't until maybe two, three months after that, that I literally was like, holy shit, this would be way bigger than even I thought. You mentioned something that I think maybe studying you, getting to know you kind of goes underappreciated that in investing, someone usually has a huge trade. Maybe they have one, two or three in their life, but they don't usually grow outside of their box. And one thing about that dinner that I find interesting is that a lot of people made money in crypto and then thought DeFi, like they didn't keep making the leaps. They thought crypto was legit and then they settled in, they were Bitcoin maxis. Then a new crop of people that got interested in DeFi. And then when NFTs came around, the crypto and DeFi, it was all like kind of separate. One thing that makes you unique, and I think it's just worth examining because it goes back to this dinner conversation of you convincing people, is that is not common that people did made money in crypto, got in, got out, made money in DeFi, walked away, came back, went to NFTs. They kind of stuck. Some people did. But what do you think it is that gets people so locked into like, look, NFTs are stupid and I can't accept it because I believe in whatever blockchain technology is real. One of my big strengths is the ability, being open to learning from anybody. What comes to mind is I remember reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad 20 years ago. And I remember reading the book and it was very like elementary. Like I majored in finance. I understood most of the concepts in that book. But I specifically remember there was literally one term and it was mentioned once in that book. And it was the term tax liens. I'd never heard of tax liens up until that point. I spent hours learning about tax liens and read books on the tax lien system and being like, holy shit, there were people that would buy unpaid taxes to buy properties at really reduced rates. And now it's like very armed out. It's hedge funds and PE firms that are in it. But like just that curiosity of being like, oh, I don't know about this. Because like, I feel like a lot of times, especially as people get older and they experience success where they're like, okay, well, I'm very good at this. I'm not going to go out of my wheelhouse because I don't understand it. And then if I don't understand it, then there's no way to make money in it, right? And I think as a trader, the one thing that I always knew was that there's no wrong way outside of doing something illegally, making money. There's a million ways. Like you and I could have be the same, like we could both be traders. We could both have the same exact time frame, but our trades could be totally different. And that doesn't make one of us right and the other one wrong. It all depends on risk tolerance, understanding of the market, understanding of the sector and understanding of the actual company. And so I think because of that, I've always had this curiosity of wanting to learn so that when I find something new, I'm like, all right, well, like, is there some sort of edge that I can find that maybe a lot of, not a lot of people see? And I think what ends up happening a lot is when people experience success, because I think it's also like a double-edged sword because 
one of the things is called style drifts. It's right, like stick to what you know, stick to what you're good at. And if you're going to like enter into other markets or other styles, don't bet the farm on it, but like bet a small amount so you feel more comfortable on it. And I feel like that's kind of what I did when I entered the NFT space where I said, originally I was like, okay, I'm going to put a few thousand bucks in it. Like I was at one point, I took out a, a $25,000 loan against a crypto kitty, which was my first NFT that I bought. And I was the biggest on-chain loan against an NFT at that point, right? And that was 25,000 bucks. And again, at the time, my friends were like making fun of me when I was fucking around with these smaller amounts. And I'm like, dude, at some point, there's going to be real money that comes into the space. And I'm going to understand it because I did it with a smaller amount of money. Because like doing this with 25,000 or 100 million, it's just economies of scale. It's the same exact process. So it was really just being open to learning and understanding that like I can learn from people that are younger than me and that there is wisdom in being able to learn from somebody that understands something that I don't. Yeah. I admire kind of the flexibility of your thinking and the willingness to kind of keep digging. Out of curiosity, that people dinner, were they already crypto people or were they non-crypto people? They were crypto people. They're deep crypto people that had been doing really, really well. The thing that I found interesting about the different kind of verticals of that is now crypto is that NFTs to me for non-crypto people were the easiest thing for them to understand. If you try to explain crypto blockchain, you try to explain DeFi, their eyes glaze over. But for non-crypto, the NFT to me, and I think you tend to agree here, is like the thing that the mainstream has some idea might make sense to them. Yeah. And the proof is in the pudding in the sense that if people really like the money games and the DeFi games, then everybody would be a stock trader. Everybody would be day trading stocks. But the fact of the matter is people don't because not everybody wants to sit in front of the screen and track the price movements and stuff all day. It's a specific certain type of person. But there's something that pretty much every human understands. It's collecting something, right? I don't know exactly, but I feel like you don't really show a kid how to collect seashells or rocks or toys or stamps. They just naturally start grouping things together. That's just a natural human thing. So when we start going and thinking about this in a digital term where people are like, oh, I'm going to collect this because I like it, or I like this project, the traits, or I like the art. It's just something that humans naturally do, which I feel like was kind of like that moment where it's like, oh shit, this is going to be bigger than just financializing everything in your life. This is going to be like, how do you get that real ownership in a digital world? Which I think up until this point in the internet, we had really been lacking. Yeah. Going back to the kind of thread, one of the examples you gave is kind of like this idea of a digital flex, the Rolex. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So if you and I were to meet at a dinner party, and I were to walk up to you and I'd be like, hey, look, look at my bank account. This is how much I made last year. <laughs> be like, you're fucking weird. <laughs> but if I walk in and I'm wearing a really nice watch or I walk in and I get out of a really nice car, that kind of tells you what you need to know, right? Where it's like, oh, all right, how successful is this guy that he can afford to wear this, right? Because for all intents and purposes, wearing a $10,000 watch has the same exact utility in terms of telling time as wearing a $5 watch or even just looking at your phone. And so it's like, why do humans continue to do that? And this isn't, I don't think is just a human phenomenon. I think this is like an animal kingdom phenomenon, whereas we put ourselves in these social hierarchies, whether it is for influence in the pack or for mating purposes or whatever, there's a thousand different reasons. But at the end of the day, we are animals and this is how we congregate. 
And so my thesis was that even though we would be living in a more virtual world, we would still be human, right? And so the things that affect us psychologically in the real world would also affect us psychologically behind a screen. And then when you start thinking about, okay, the economies of scale of having like a tech stack, if I'm going to spend $150,000 on either a car or a picture, the scale of me flexing that picture online 24-7 worldwide is way higher and bigger bang for my buck than me buying like a Lamborghini and then like the 10 or 15 people that see me driving that Lamborghini are like, oh shit, like he drives a Lambo, right? Like it's like that economy of scale I thought was really, really interesting. I just felt, especially at that time, people didn't realize it. Now today people, like I think it's very common knowledge where people are like, oh, like you spent a million bucks on a board ape or a crypto punk, whatever. But at that time, people were like, are you an idiot? Like you can write <laughs> and save this. But it's like now that ape is known as the G money ape. People were like taking that and making that their profile pictures. And I was like, please do it. I hope everybody does because then mine is more valuable because I can prove that I have the original. Yeah, I remember that. People come from Wall Street and that summer I was at a conference and had told people, I was like, I'm not going to tell people I bought a bunch of board apes or like not. And so I just decided, I was like, whatever, I'm just going to be honest. This is not who you think I am, but this is what I did. And I remember distinctly this guy just mocking me in front of the group. And I'm like, why do you have a black Rolex Submariner like everyone else on Wall Street? <laughs> and it was just like because of the same thing. And you think it's crazy now and maybe I'm completely wrong, but I'm just saying there's a reason why you're wearing that on your wrist. And to see your point, it's the same thing. It's kind of like this digital version of flexing to one another, which I think a lot of people at first, when that happened, when NFTs went into this hyper bubble, which I thought you did a good job constantly telling people like, look, this stuff could fall. Like this isn't, you weren't someone just kind of pumping things. You saw the technology, but obviously that caused a pretty bitter adverse reaction. Something you've talked about has happened 20 years faster than you thought it would. And one thing that concerns me is when that happens, there was a lot of negative reaction, right? All of a sudden punks are unobtainable, board apes are unobtainable for a lot of people. And so the group that made a lot of money is a small, tight group that sees the future, but the average world didn't. So how did that coming forward kind of disrupt maybe the path that you expected for NFTs? I mean, I thought it would take way longer. I specifically remember I was like, I'm going to spend the next five years hanging out with my friends on the internet until the world realizes these are valuable assets. And then it happened like two weeks later. Same as that conversation that you were having with your Wall Street friends. I especially remember I was away for New Year's with some friends who, as I was explaining to them why I was buying these NFTs online, they were literally looking at me like I was the dumbest person they've ever met. And the only reason they didn't say that is because I've already proven myself of being like a critical thinker and smart and having good trade ideas. But like I could tell that they were like, this is the dumbest thing ever. And so when we started looking at like, okay, that reflexivity of that price action that ended up happening, I think it's just a function of free and easy money, massive money printing of, okay, well, we're printing more dollars. What are we not easily printing more of? Crypto punks, right? Like these digital assets that are super scarce, even deflationary. And then also just catching fire at the right place at the right time. Because honestly, like if NFTs didn't do what they did last year, would we be sitting here talking about it? I think to the scale that we are, would companies be looking at the space and starting to develop three to five-year plans in this? Probably not. I think it's just a function of, I know people always show those cyclical charts of like hysteria and then bubble phase, and then hopefully we're 
towards like the end of the bear market now in in crypto in general. But like you have these things of, um, and I think George Soros had like a really good chart on it on reflexivity on both sides, where it's like it's just part of human nature and it's going to happen and you can't regulate it on the upside. The reason why you have a bubble in any asset class, I feel like, is because the story is really good. Why is it that we have bubbles in any, like the tech bubble 20 years ago, is because people were like, yeah, this is going to change the way the world works. And then valuations get ahead of themselves, right? And so I do think that long-term, the tech is here to change our lives. But I do think now it's like, we need to start building, right? Even when you take a look at the price of Ethereum compared to where it was five years ago, and what adoption is like compared to five years ago, it's like, this is Ethereum round trip and usage is up significantly. So it's like, what does this mean about price action going forward long-term? So while I agree with you, I guess one common refrain that people would look at, the asset bubbles you're talking about, like the internet bubble, is the idea that the market is discounting the future too quickly. It's not here yet. And it takes time, in the case of the internet, like 10 years to catch up back to what people had expected in the markets. But other people would throw at you, well, no, this isn't the internet. This is just beanie babies. This is just a speculative mania happening that will come, go, and disappear. How do you think about the difference between a beanie baby and NFT and the internet? I mean, I think you're kind of conflating two topics there. So I think NFT tech is going to change the world. That is the internet. And I think that there are certain aspects to that that are beanie babies, right? Like most projects will trend to zero over time because when you think about this meme of utility, like utility was born from the simple fact that people were doing a lot of copy pasta projects. And because the floor price would pump and dump, then they would start making these promises of like, we're going to make a video game. We're going to do this. We're going to do that to kind of like keep the floor price higher and kind of buy time. And that's where this whole concept of utility comes from. When in reality, it's like, yeah, they're probably not the best allocators of capital. They're probably going to throw a lot of the money away, which I think we've kind of seen. I think uh, I wasn't at NFT NYC this past year, but when I looked at videos of it, I'm like, man, like talk about a misuse of victory. <laughs> rather than throw a one day party for half a million dollars, I think I'd rather you have runway to hire competent people for the next six to 12 months. But that's just me, right? But like it becomes that double-edged sword. So I do think you're going to have aspects of Beanie Babies in regards to it. I personally have slowed down from deploying capital in new projects because when I first came into the space in late 2020, I felt like pretty much anything that I was going to buy could be considered historic. There was that window where there weren't that many projects. And my thesis was, okay, what could end up in the crypto art wing at the MoMA? And let me try to buy a plethora of those. And then hopefully a few of them hit, one of them, two of them hit and I'm fine. That pays for all the losers. As I think we started seeing this euphoria start happening, and there were a lot of copy pasta projects just doing cash grabs or whatever, I really slowed down because I'm like, I don't know what's going to be historic now. Because the easy trade of finding historic assets, because they're old and communities formed around them is gone. Because now it's like you have to become a project picker, and you didn't have enough information. So like, my thing was like, People are like, oh, why don't you sell squiggles? Why don't you sell punks or whatever and diversify into other stuff? And I'm like, listen, if squiggles go up 10x from here, I'm going to be really, really happy. And that to me is a lower risk trade than selling a squiggle, trying to find something to 10,000x my money or go to zero. I'm cool. Like, give me the 10x, give me the 5x. I'll be really, really happy with that. 
because I took that risk on initially. So I do think we're going to have aspects of that Beanie Babies. There are projects that traded as high as whatever, 30, 40 ETH that are like debt. I forgot exactly what that project was where I think Logan Paul paid like almost a million dollars or something. And now like the floor is under 0.1 or something, right? Like there's going to be those. But the key is the underlying tech is really here to stay and change the world. And then just try to allocate into historic NFTs, which is why like punks and squiggles, I'd rather be more concentrated in projects that I firmly believe in, as opposed to maybe diversifying a little more and taking on more risk of it could either go to zero or it could go up 50x, where it's like, I'd be happy with the 5x. I'm not going to be that greedy. Yeah. So for me, I got into it, saw the punks. I was like, oh, it's too much money. Obviously got in the board apes and stuff. I got into this thing called Pixel Vault. I'm following G Money. And then all of a sudden, I see that to my crazy surprise, Board Apes, Pixel Vault, and G Money do a collaboration with Adidas. So I can't imagine a $20 billion market cap company calling an ape avatar and being like, let's do this. So I've always wanted to ask you about how the hell did you land a deal with Adidas in the first place? Like, where did this come from? The first time I was reached out to by Adidas, I believe it was April, mid April of last year. And somebody on their Web3 team, Ben Mayer White, literally sends me a message and he's like, hey, I really like what you're doing. I'm on the Web3 team at Adidas. I'd love to chat with you. And I'm like, okay, like, what if he does work at Adidas? <laughs> and so I'm like, I'll take 20 minutes of my time. Because like, again, like he didn't even say he worked at Adidas in his profile. So we were chatting. We would have these long conversations. I still had no idea if he worked at Adidas or not. And then he would be like, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? And I'm like, yeah. And this was like, we started our conversations before Board Apes and Pixel Vault even existed as projects. I believe they both minted in early to mid-May. So we were starting those conversations even before. This was part of my thesis of like, we need a company like Adidas to come in and help onboard the masses. I can only onboard so many people at a time, but a company like Adidas that's like, oh yeah, like all we have to do is blast our constituents. All we have to do is make product linked to an NFT that like people will want to buy. They already have the channels to kind of get the tech out there. And so I got really excited when they came to me and I was like, dude, like I'd love to work with you. I'd love to figure something out. And the relationship kept evolving. We just started becoming more intricate in that process. And then I remember in the summer of last year, I went to Herzog, which is where their headquarters are. And I met with some real senior level people there. And it was like, this is actually like the real deal. So it was literally like a dream come true. It was almost like manifested because I remember starting to think about, okay, what does it look like when big brands come into the space? And then it just so happened, like, I mean, I think Adidas and Nike are probably two of the most culturally relevant brands on the planet in terms of I think everybody on planet Earth knows who they are, and they are arbiters of cool, more so than any other brand out there at scale. And the fact that they both came in last year with plans, I think, puts every other big brand out there on notice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's lots of people who have interviewed you on your background, and we kind of skipped over it, but you are a trader in traditional markets. You traded crypto. You kind of were always ran your own money. At this point, when you're talking to Adidas, are you still trading equities and playing with NFTs? Or are you already starting to think like, I'm going to be start a brand, a new company? I stopped trading full-time. I was already starting to trade part-time, let's say by the end of 2020. I stopped trading totally in March of 2021. I just don't have enough time. I mean, trading is a very competitive business. So if you don't have the time to 
learn the craft and keep up with stories and understand the news that it hits, like you're just going to fall behind and you're going to end up losing money because you're trading with people that are smarter than you, that are better capitalized than you, that have faster systems than you, like all these things. So I said to myself, if I'm wrong, I can always go back to trading. Like I've been doing it for most of my life. I started following the stock market when I was 12 years old. It'll always be there. But I was like, this was to me like a once in a lifetime opportunity where I somehow to use like, I guess I don't surf, but I use a surfing analogy, right? It's like I was out there on the surfboard ready for the wave that's coming while people were like swimming out there being like, what the fuck are NFTs? I was like, I'm here. Like I'm ready to catch the wave. There's nobody out here with me. And so I was like, if I didn't at least take the shot, I would probably regret it for the rest of my life. So for me, it was like a no brainer. So getting in front of a trend is huge. At that point in time, we're going back now to March, April. Do you know definitively like where you want to go with it? Or are you just like, I want to be in this space and I don't know, like, I want to go into fashion. I want to start a trading firm. Like, did you know where you were going at that point in time or are you still discovering it? I had an idea. I will say like it's evolved a little bit all throughout my interaction in the space. When I first came into NFTs, I wanted to start a metaverse fashion brand. I just thought it was too early. In the fall of 2020, I'm like, nobody's hanging out in the metaverse. Who's going to buy a metaverse wearable? I remember even thinking like, should I be doing something with Minecraft or Roblox or something, right? And doing something there. But I said, you know, I'm going to establish myself as a collector in the space and just like a forward thinking person. And that's how I originally started. I remember that evolved in March because I was involved in putting 100 crypto punks on billboards in Miami with Justin Aversano and Save Art Space. And it was really there at that opening party that I was like, holy shit, this is going to be way bigger than I thought. This is going to be massive. And there are going to be brands that come into the space that need somebody that they trust that has good credibility to really handhold them and help guide them through it. And I was like, all right, I can be that person. I see the opportunity there. I'm going to seize it because at the time also, and I never tweeted about this because like people that were, let's say, also like influential in NFTs, some of them were just like throwing their name on anything to get involved in projects and stuff like that. So I had this clear and long-term vision how I always viewed my interaction in the space and it's always getting tweaked, right? Where I'm like, okay, well, this is how I'm thinking things. This is how I'm thinking. I'm always pivoting in the sense of like, okay, what do I think makes the most sense? How did this play out against my original thesis? But ultimately, I really started thinking long-term around March where it no longer was just a trade for me at that point. It was more of like, this is like a new vertical for every business on the planet. And this is like a good long-term mega trend. In any market, there's a lot of noise and there's a small signal. And I think about all the people during that time that were becoming these influencers and you're Adidas or Nike, you can call anyone, you can get anyone to come give you like a teach and learn of like, how does this work? And then just dump them and go off and use your brand. But you were able to build something more than just a meeting with Adidas. You built a company around it. When you're talking with the brands, I guess two parts. One, how did you structure it that so G money became relevant? And then also, what is it like from the brand side? Like, what are the type of questions or understandings that you're trying to help them get up to speed with? The building the brand was really intentional in the sense that when you take a look at the last 10 to 20 years, who are some of the most influential people on planet Earth? The Kardashians did a really good job. They crushed it. I don't think a group of people have crushed it as well as they have in the last 10, 15 years. And using that as a model of saying, okay, well, 
how can I become my own version of the Kardashians of the space and like my own Kim K and trying to figure that out and work that out in my head is something that I've been like, even from day one, very cognizant of, of like, okay, what do I see working in the real world? And how do I apply that to my space, which is small at the moment, but I think is going to grow bigger over time. And so that formed a lot of my thinking very early on with regards to how those conversations happen with the brands is I just think I am able to understand what is happening and I'm able to explain it to people that might not understand it, like the technical aspect, and I can make it real colloquial for them, right? And so that they understand like, oh, okay, cool. Like I understand how this ultimately affects our bottom line. How does this ultimately affect our business practices? How does this affect how we operate going forward and the things that we do that are engaging to the community, creating a stronger connection with our end user, right? And all these things that brands spend a ton of money trying to figure out that now you kind of have this direct connection. So I do think that like I provide that. And one of the other reasons why I launched 90CC when I did, I find a lot of times you start seeing brands will have their like Web3 team and they're like, oh yeah, like they have a good background. And then like I talk to their Web3 team, I'm like, okay, what would you do in the space? And they have like little to no, their resume is like very sparse. And so I'm like, okay, like you're the person that's going to drive innovation at this company. Got it. I don't think it's going to happen. And so I think that by me doing the things that I'm doing with 90CC, I'm hoping to kind of push the boundaries of what brands and companies and people think is possible and saying, oh, wow, like here's this guy that's doing something really cool and innovative. Then, you know, maybe we partner with him on our own version of that, or we bring him on to help advise us on that. And it's been really fun. And it allows me to kind of be very selective with who I work with, where people are like, we'd love to work with you on this. I'm like, ah, I just don't like, I'm not excited about that brand. But then I get introductions to other people. I'm like, dude, I would love to figure something out. Let's do something together. It's been good to have a lot of those conversations. And I think right now, the hard part is we're in a lull. So I think the teams that are really investing in the space right now are the teams that see the future, but also might be under investing sometimes too. So I think it's going to be very interesting and compelling of what the next 24 to 36 months look like. When you talk about that communication gap that you're filling for these companies that they might really understand marketing, they understand their segments, they understand their customer to a certain degree. What are some of the most powerful examples in those dialogues where you're helping the brands understand the future utility of NFTs? I think helping them understand different revenue unlocks that might not be on the surface. Obviously, like royalties is low hanging fruit. What happens to royalties from here? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine, but I don't think they go away, especially if you want utility tied to an NFT, you're going to have to pay royalties, right? Like it's pretty ludicrous to think that if you, you can't live in a world where you think that because you bought that jumpsuit, that you deserve free benefits for life. That's not how it works. You get what you pay for. If something's free, the quality is going to degrade, right? And it's interesting starting to see that pushback where it's like at the end of the day, and you know, Artifact had this issue with the Monolith 2s last week where at the end of the day, it's something that was airdropped for free. It was like the fourth or fifth airdrop that you had gotten at that point. Like they have to make money. They're not doing this as a nonprofit. Maybe they could have done a better job with messaging, maybe for sure. But like as a consumer, you have to be a little realistic with what's coming, right? It's like you got it for free and they're a business. And so I think that that mindset has to end up changing 
with regards to NFTs and utility where you don't buy a shirt once and expect to get free shirts for the rest of your life. That's just not the way the world works. So we're going through the learning process. I think we're going to see new models morph out of this, new business models, right? I think the royalty model has definitely helped. Like Board Apes wouldn't be a $4 billion company today without the royalty market, right? A lot of these projects wouldn't exist without a royalty market. So I think there is value to that. The question is, what does the community innovate towards in the future? I don't know. Maybe there's going to be something where it's like, when it comes out, like people are like, oh my God, that's it. That was like the missing link. Maybe one is too extreme, one is not extreme enough, and you find that thing in the middle. But the beautiful thing about building on open source is that if you have a really good idea and like it makes sense, then people can start building on that. And then that's how we get innovation faster. When Sergio was on, we were debating royalties and he was totally market-based, drive to the lowest price, you've got to find a way to win. I was kind of bummed out about it just because I thought that was actually one of the most compelling cases when I explained to people. When I was at Art Basel a couple of years ago, it was just such a funny clash of young people and older people trading art, digital versus physical. And when I would talk to any of the older physical art collectors who knew nothing about crypto, as soon as I explained the artist getting a royalty and not Steve Cohen trading to Ken Griffin and an artist never getting anything, they instantly loved it just for that reason of like the person, there's an equitable thing of the artist winning. So I would be so bummed if I hope you solve it or somebody solves it. So like to that point, right? Because I know Sergio is very like, let the market decide. And I get that, you know, listen, I'm, I love the free market. I don't want to impede that. But I also do think that you can kind of lead with a carrot instead of a stick. So instead of penalizing people, like be like, all right, well, as an artist, it's like if you want first dibs at like my new collection, you should be paying royalties, right? Like, why do I want a collector that's going to bypass royalties, right? If you want the benefits of going to Ape Fest, you pay royalties. And if like you bypass those royalties, then guess what? You don't get access to Ape Fest or whatever utilities that that will come to it. And I think that that will be a way to lead with the carrot instead of the stick. I think ultimately the system that I think might make sense would be something like the asset could be traded without royalties, but then like you can opt it back in. Maybe like you decide you don't want to pay the royalty on it and I buy it, but then like I sell it to somebody else and like, oh, well, I'll pay the royalty fee that was foregone and I can get back into the system. Now that doesn't pay the royalty fee for our trade and that trade, it gets paid once. So there's probably still ways to idea, but I feel like that that is like almost a good middle solution where it's like, all right, if you don't pay the royalty, you don't get the benefits. You get the art, it's your product that you own. But if you want to be part of the community and you want to get access to the Discord, access to special events, then you need to be paying the royalties because these are businesses. People need to survive. I love that. I've been thinking a lot about the watch market and trading a watch that has box and papers versus trading a watch that doesn't and the discount that you get. And just not to decide here, but just kind of a fun thing to think about. It's almost like you could imagine if you had an NFT that its whole life, every time it's traded, it's like kind of like taxes do. If it's a clean NFT, so it gets total access and rights. But if the chain's ever been broken, kind of like when we see a stolen NFT, you're like, look, at some point in its life, this NFT did not pay its full royalties. So subject to warning, you might not get the full benefits of the group. That would just be really cool. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think we're probably going to go towards that world. I think just the issue is the tech isn't there yet to do it no code wise, right? Like if I'm an artist right now, how can I find, or even like a collection, like how can I find out who hasn't paid royalties? So I think those things will end up being built. 
I think that that is the best way to do it as opposed to utilizing one marketplace's contract to block non-royalty paying ones. Then you don't really own the asset anymore. I agree. All right. G Money Empire time. I tried to like correlate everything, admit one, wolf game, internet game. We've got 90CC. Let's do a high level overview of the empire. And then I really want to dive in deep into 90CC. Admit one is the access point for all the things that I'm working on. I think I'm working on some cool things that some things not yet announced. Obviously, 90CC. And when I launched Admit One, I wanted to start cultivating the community that would ultimately be the beginnings of 90CC and the market will morph into what it is over time. So Admit One is my community. We're like really active in Discord. There's only a thousand people that are in there. And the way I distributed that community was by handing out POAPs to people in real life as I met them. They were allowed to mint the NFT for free, which traded as high as 20 ETH. I think it's currently trading around 4 ETH at the moment. I'm not exactly sure. But like that to me is like the foundation of the things that I'm working on from a community perspective. I think that from there is where 90CC was born, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to use this community of people telling them what I'm going to be working on. I think people had kind of an idea of where I was headed based on like the projects that I was working on, the things that I was talking about to really become part of that community. And what I want to do with 90CC is really just drive innovation and drive use cases the same way that when I talked about the CryptoPunk that I bought, when I started utilizing POOPs in the middle of last year and building out my social graph in the real world, and I was like, oh, people were like interested in this stuff. How can we do this at scale? I think one of the cool things about the activation that we did at Basel, and I'm probably getting a little bit ahead of myself, is like being able to take this activation that I did personally over the course of the last year and a half and now do it at scale where I'm now taking myself out of that equation and getting people to interact in real life. When I look at it, it's probably more like two eggs and I'll put a wolf game in there. Like, dude, alpha game ended today. Thank God. Big shout out to Jay Steezy, who basically won the game for us. The guy is a master politician. He should be running for president one day because we had all odds stacked against us and we somehow managed to finish in first, which is incredible. But and that was just something that like I fell into. Like I remember when that got announced, I literally was like, oh shit, this would be a lot of fucking work. Yeah. I didn't even do it. I was like, no chance. And the army's reforming. I'm like, I don't have time for this. Yeah. Literally, I was just like, if somebody will buy it at a fair price, then sure, I'll sell it. And then the beanie FUD came out literally like 15 minutes afterwards. I'm like, I guess I'm playing the game. (laughs) And then I met Jay Steezy. He was the general. He basically ran strategy and was involved in the day-to-day. Thankfully, that's over now. So I don't have like thousands of people relying on somebody on the team like hitting like attacker fort no matter what hour of the day it is which is insane that it went on for like a year which is crazy i think when i look at it like a lot of it is those two communities where there's a lot of overlap now but i think over time there's going to be like people that are more interested in fashion will be focused on 90cc and people who are probably more interested in crypto will also be in admit one and i think there'll be overlap so going back to that poap thing you're traveling around giving people poaps Explain to people what a POAP is and what you were doing. I guess my second question is, one of these things about the projects when I've talked to brands that have done stuff, 
I'm always disappointed with how far they haven't thought ahead of it. Like, oh, we'll figure it out as we get there. I'm curious how much you were like, oh, I know where I'm going to go with this. I just don't want to tell the world yet because I love the secret and the surprise and the forethought. So explain what a POAP is. And then we'll, I won't really want to get into the activation. So a POAP stands for Proof of Attendance Protocol. And basically think of it as like a digital ticket stub. So if you go to an event, you can collect the POAP, which sits in your wallet as proof that you were there. Just the same way as you go to a concert, you keep the ticket stub, you put it up on your wall, in your album, whatever it is. And so I remember in Bitcoin Miami in June of 2021, I was going and I'm like, it would be pretty cool. And this was like the first time the world's opening back up. I've now like G-Money is five, six months old. I'm like, all right, I want to meet my internet friends, right? Like, you know, I live in Puerto Rico. So like I knew a decent amount of the crypto community, but it's like, I want to meet more people and like people wanted to meet me. So I was like, okay, what well, would be really cool? And we decided this two or three days before uh, we, me, because at the time it was still just like me pretty much running my own thing. I was like, all right, I want to do this POAP event, a scavenger hunt. The Bitcoin Miami conference was in Wynwood. I want to pay somebody to stand at like Panther Coffee for two hours. I would tweet out, go to Panther Coffee between like 3 and 5 p.m., find the person wearing the G-Money shirt, collect the POAP. So it was just like high friction enough that you would go five, 10 minutes out of your way. You get a free cup of coffee. I think the first 20 people got like a $5 gift certificate for a free cup of coffee and see what happens. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I'm like, all right, if there ever is a reason for me to do something, I now have these wallets of people that believed in me really early on. Over the course of three days, I think we had a total of 71 or 81 people that participated. Of those, 11 of them came each and every day. So it was a different POAP each and every day. It was like Miami Vibe style. So one was like my ape as like Miami Vice, another one ape as Scarface, and another one ape as Pitbull. Just three very Miami POAPs. What ended up happening was on one of those days, these two guys met who didn't know each other. They had nothing in common at that point other than the fact that they both followed me and they both showed up to that location to collect the POAP at the same time. They ended up starting a $35 million venture fund together. They were like on the founding members of like one or two DAOs together. That really stuck with me like really early on. I was like, that's really fucking cool. Those people met because of me. And that connection happened because I helped facilitate it. Over the course of the next few months, I was like, all right, well, how do I facilitate connections with people I meet in real life? And that's when I started handing out POAPs not knowing exactly what I was going to do with it, but I knew that I wanted to tokenize my community and get like my community members in some sort of formal capacity through tokenization. I didn't know exactly how I was going to do what I was going to do just yet, but I knew I was going to do something. I'm like, I can be really quiet about it. I can take my time about it because people don't expect it. That really was kind of like how I laid out the breadcrumbs for Admit One. And that entire time thinking about those two guys connecting that were total strangers. How can I help facilitate that to happen at scale? That was like the building blocks of the connectivity that goes into 90CC and like the POAP event that we did at Miami a few weeks ago. When you were sitting on a plane traveling around the country and someone next to you just starts asking you the, hey, what do you do? And you start telling them the craziest story ever. And they're like, that's really cool, G-Money. Were you giving like random strangers POAPs or was it really like always planned out? Yeah, it would be a mix of the two. Because the thing is, like, a POAP is free, right? Sometimes I'd be like, 
do you want a free NFT? And people are like, okay, because like people are like, well, I thought NFTs were like hundreds of thousands of dollars and were stupid pictures of monkeys. And I'm like, no, no, like I'll give you an NFT right now. All you need to do is put in your email address. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, just kind of to open up their thoughts, right? Like I wouldn't say I was the guy walking around. I was like, hell, free NFT. <laughs> if somebody was like intrigued enough, and I still do that now where it's like, especially when people see like maybe a group of us scanning each other's shirts, there are people like, what is that? I'm like, do you want a free NFT? And they're like, okay. They'll ask questions and people go as deep or as shallow as they want. All right. So let's talk about these shirts. So 90CC is your fashion brand. You build a fashion house and you release these. It's a really cool shirt. For people haven't seen. It's this black slick shirt and it's got this patch. I don't know where you would describe it. Kind of like right of lower center. And it's big. It's not like a small patch. So what is that patch? What does it do? What's kind of the technology behind it? So there's an NFC chip that's in the patch. The NFC chip is actually only six millimeters. So it's like really small. The reason why I went with a large patch is because I just thought it was aesthetically nice. Like I just like the way it looked. The NFC chip is embedded in the shirt. It's sewn in and it acts as a few things. First is it acts as a proof of authenticity. Going back to your earlier point of like when you trade watches, watches without paperwork are worth significantly less than watches with paperwork. That begets the question of, how much is that proof of authenticity actually worth? It might be more valuable than the watch. Because technically, if I have a real Rolex with paperwork and I buy an exact replica that like counterfeiters can't tell, and then I sell you that exact replica with the paperwork, technically you now own the real Rolex. There is a significant amount of value in that certificate of authenticity. So how can you start implementing that with goods that get counterfeited a lot, whether it's a handbag or designer clothes or sneakers or whatever, how can we get that proof of authenticity to start traveling with the actual product so it makes it harder to counterfeit? And that was just something that I wanted as a consumer, which I was like, all right, I would love to see this. If I'm spending $2,000 on a handbag, I want to know how many of these exist. Is this real? What is the potential resale value? Because I know that the supply and demand. That was one. Two is I wanted to make an aesthetic that could signal to the real world that I'm a crypto native, but also maybe not necessarily be in your face. I'm known as G-Money, the crypto punk ape online, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to walk around with a picture of my ape on my chest all day. So it's like, how can I say to the world, oh, that guy is successful. He does well. He's in NFTs. He's in crypto. And he's a crypto native. And that was like the design process behind the aesthetic. And then third, and this is where I think Things get really interesting. And this is where that initial story that I told you of these guys meeting is how do I bring that those elements of gamification into the real world? And how do I get people to connect in real life and creating, bringing these connections that were previously online into the offline world? And that's really what I'm hoping to do by creating a POAP. So every shirt, every 90cc shirt, anyone you see in the wild, you can literally walk up to anybody that's wearing one and ask them for a POAP. You can get a free NFT from anybody wearing a shirt. And so the reason for that is I'm trying to spark connectivity. I'm trying to get people to meet in real life. If you see somebody wearing a shirt of a brand you might like, you'd be like, oh, that's a cool shirt. And a lot of times it just ends there, right? It's like, oh, that guy, I like his style. How do you then push that a little bit forward where it's like, okay, I like your shirt. Can I collect the POAP? You know, it takes like five to 10 seconds to collect the POAP. Maybe you're like, where are you from? What do you do? Like you're in NFTs, like you're in crypto, like what do you like? And then you can start 
this new friendship and this new relationship based off something as simple as just liking, appreciating somebody's style. And that to me, I think is like the real secret sauce of what ends up happening when you can build that community in real life and then also create these digital breadcrumbs of it so that people can track it online. So when you actually do that, you're in Miami, I come up to you and I'm like, G-Money, can I have one of your pops? What actually happens? You literally just scan the tag on my shirt, you press collect, you put in your ETH address and you collect the PO app. One thing I saw that I thought was super cool was that like each shirt, I don't make it this wrong, only had like 200 PO apps. It wasn't like they just blasted to anyone. So does the shirt wearer have to like approve it? You would approve like who scans you. Usually most people come up and ask. I mean, you're not going to walk up to someone and be like, hey, I want to like grab it and <laughs> run. But I was curious, is there any like mutualness to it? Or is it literally you could just, if you had your phone technically and you got the shirt, you could scan it? Yeah, you can. If you had your phone, you could scan it. It really is proof of human, right? You're not going to let somebody scan your shirt like a hundred times and send it out to like a bunch of different things because you also have like a limited number of them. It's really also empowering people to create their own social graph. The people you know in your life are different than the people I know. Maybe we have that small overlap of mutual friends. You can build your own social graph and reward people if you want. You could do your own version of what I did with Admit One. And people have done it. I think Ryan Carson has done it. A couple other founders have been like, if you meet me and you collect my specific POAP, then you will get on the allow list for X. And so like people are now using the product to create their own social graphs that I might never meet or ever interact with. But now they know that they're all like members of, let's say, the 90cc core community. They know that they can see each other out in the wild and be like, oh, yeah, like I fuck with that. And so in our puzzle, did people like understand that this was going to happen, like this type of activation? Or like, how did you kind of announce it? What actually happened down there in Miami? What we ended up doing is we had the pop up where we were making these iteration two shirts, which was a collab with Snowfro. And so each shirt is a generative one of one of approximately 1,200. I think it's 1,182. And so everyone has a unique shirt, but it's from the same line. It's like a squig- chromy squiggle, right? It's like, you know it when you see it, even though each one's different. And it's the same thing with this. We were fulfilling these on demand where people would walk into the pop-up, they'd mint the NFT, we'd put that NFT onto a shirt, direct the garment, we would link that NFT directly to the shirt so that the NFT and the shirt stay together. And then we box it up and we give it to the customers. What we did simultaneously, and I think we announced this three or four days before, where we ran this POAP event, where the people who collected the most POAPs and the people who gave out the most POAPs, the the number one person on each side would get a free iteration one shirt, which is worth like 600 bucks. And so people like started going out and like, meeting people was incentivizing people to go out and talk to each other and make new friends and make new acquaintances. So like, to me, I thought it was really successful over the course of five days, the network distributed 5,000 POAPs. I personally distributed, I think 140, but like overall the network distributed 5,000, which I think is really, really powerful in terms of like the grassroots level of it and people interacting and engaging And not necessarily being like, oh, yeah, like G-Money, you have to meet G-Money. No, like you can meet anybody wearing a shirt. You can engage with them. And I'm hoping I have like 50 more stories like the one I just shared about people starting business ventures together and becoming partners or becoming lifelong friends, all because they met because they were both wearing the same shirt or one of them was wearing the shirt. That's cool. You have a quote we were talking about that your net worth is your network. Can you kind of like explain what you mean by that? Because I think this is obviously a great example. 
the people that you're closest with and the people that you interact with determine the things that you're going to do in life and determine like who you surround yourself with, right? Because you surround yourself with like-minded individuals. And so I think this almost quantifies that a little bit in the sense that these are connections that we know have been happening since the beginning of humanity. You and I have met in real life. Now, how cool would that be if we can start quantifying that we've met in real life? It's interesting because it's like one of those, like on LinkedIn, I'm sure LinkedIn used to be high signal, but now LinkedIn is low signal where people are like, oh, you're friends with this person on LinkedIn. What do you know about them? I'm like, yeah, this person just like mass friend requested me and I just wanted to grow my LinkedIn network. So I said, yes. But like, how much more meaningful would it be if I could see like, oh shit, you guys met. I don't know this person, but you connected with them in real life because they have your PO app. Can you make an introduction to me? That's huge. huge. It's a real face-to-face interaction where now that introduction of you introducing me to that person becomes way more meaningful. All of a sudden, like that LinkedIn introduction, which maybe 10 years ago used to be high signal and is low signal now, becomes super high signal because it's like, yeah, you're not giving your PO app to some random bot on the internet. You're giving your PO app to somebody that you've met in real life. And so is the 200, like, to what you can talk about that, is that part of your thinking that if you had made it infinity, you'd just create the next LinkedIn and there would be no signal? Or is there something like where it's going to re-up every year and you're going to get more of them? The way we're planning it is we're going to re-up them every quarter. I think 200 over the course of the year is too small. We're messing around with those sizes. Like, for instance, for like the Miami PO app event, it was 1,000 per shirt that people were allowed to distribute because I just want to see like what happens if we don't throttle it? Like, what does it look like? I thought it was really interesting. And like, I think over the course of the next few times that we do this, we can get an idea for how many people are making connections. What is the average connection size? And then we can right size that, right? It's a learning experience. Maybe it's too high, maybe it's too low. And we'll have a better idea of what that looks like going forward. So the way we end these podcasts is with the same question. And I love talking to you about this stuff because I know there's some stuff you'll share and I know there's some stuff that you can't, but what are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to either build or see built over the next six years? Okay. So over the next six months and six years, the thing that I'm obviously the most excited about is 90cc. So we'll just set that aside for a second. Over the next six months and six years, and this is kind of related, but I'll say just for the category in general is really like linking the physical world to the digital world. Because I think what we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months is brands and people in the real world being like, okay, how can I like sell digital assets? People should be thinking about it the other way around. Is like, how can I bring these digital assets to life? Because I think that's something that we all know as people in the space is like, how can I like hang out with my Discord community IRL, like at the Nets NYC event. How can we facilitate that? How can we make that happen easier? And I think the people that will be making that happen easier are going to be the winners over the next few years. Because I also think that like AR and VR tech will also be getting better, right? What does the world look like when I can literally just look at you and through my Google AR glasses or Apple AR glasses be like, oh, Discord username, Twitter username, like, this is their like wallet or, you know, whatever. It's like, oh shit, Eric, fucking homie. Like we chat on Discord every day. Like it's great to meet you, right? It's like, I think that there's going to be more of that inter overlap of the digital and the physical as we trend more digital over time. Our kids and our grandkids will definitely be spending more time in front of a computer than we are. 
which goes to the same for us with our parents and our grandparents. That's great. Jimari, thank you for the time. This has been awesome. I always enjoy chatting with you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 